Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. It's quite an amazing culture of, you know, we say they're, they're kind of a Buddhist culture, but you know, that's, that's not entirely true because Buddhism is only approximately 25% of the culture. I mean, it's so dominant. Everybody, everybody in Vietnam honors the Lady Buddha, Quan Yin. They call her Quan Nam, and she is statues of her everywhere. And it doesn't matter if you're Catholic or whatever, you always honor her and, and pray to her. So it's not necessarily a Buddhist thing, but it's a cultural thing. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Welcome back to another episode of Stigma Free Vet Zone in our really wonderful conversation, continuing conversation with uh, Vietnam veteran John Wesley Fisher. We want to talk today or have John talk today and describe to us his new book, Docto RX. But just a little refresher John Wesley Fisher was conscripted by his country to fight in the Vietnam War during the 1968 Tet Offensive. He has gone on to study chiropractics and has a 40 year chiropractic practice, and he is the author of five books. And four of those books, I always get this mixed up, but John will clear it up for us. He's written four books on Vietnam, and he's got a fifth book coming out, which is Docto Rx, the book that John's going to be describing for us today. He is now the director of CORE, Community Reconciliation of Vietnam, a nonprofit organization for veterans and civilians and humanitarian travel to Vietnam. And presently, he lives in the backwoods of Maine with his wife of 12 years, Lindsley Field. But one of the, the nice things about this book, great things about this book, and I hope our audience will listen for that today, is this is a very, very healing story. So let's go out to Maine and welcome back to our conversation, John Wesley Fisher. Good morning, John. Good to have you back from vacation and to get on with, the, with this wonderful story. If you want, I'm just going to let you go off and, and start talking about this book, but maybe first just introduce, for me, I know Doc To was a, was a place, a geographic place in Vietnam. If you could explain Doc To RX and then just tell us about Doc To RX. Well, you've seen RX. Uh, it is used for prescription writing by the medical profession, but it's also a, uh, it, it means remedy in Greece. Greek, and it's not necessarily a script, but it can be advice. And uh, I used it as a remedy to say that Docto was going to become a remedy for me. At least I was hoping that it would. 
I have been back to Vietnam eight times by the time I did this particular trip. Uh, most of the time it was facilitating groups of veterans and civilians that I take back to do humanitarian and veteran healing work. But this particular trip was kind of spontaneous and it was a six week solo adventure that I had planned. And my usual guide in Vietnam would not be available for me except for a short time, maybe the, fir the first week I actually stayed with him. The rest of the time I was on my own to find my own guides and or actually solo it. So it was quite interesting because when you travel in Vietnam, a guide is very, very helpful. The language is very difficult and just ordering food and getting around and asking for directions and, and this or that, getting a hotels, everything is so complicated. So having a, a guide was usually imperative, but on this trip it wasn't for me because I was solo and it was uh, quite amazing. I went all the way First down, after spending a week in Saigon, I went down through the Mekong Delta for another week. Then I took a flight up to the Central Highlands in Pleiku. And this is the area where I served with the 4th Infantry Division, 2 Corps, during the Vietnam War. And it's mostly jungled mountains in the Central Highlands, very thick triple canopy mountains that we have to climb through the jungles. And Dok Tho was a village up there that, oh, had significant meaning. There was a huge battle there during the first wave of the Tet Offensive. I was not there during that first wave. The second wave, which was the most intense wave of the Tet Offensive, began in May, and that's when I arrived in Vietnam. More people were killed in May of 1968 in Vietnam. More American soldiers, I should say. More names on the wall from that area, that time, than any other month during the whole 10 years that we were involved in that war. And I arrived there just at the time when all that was coming down. And it was a pretty hairy experience. We were up in the Docto area most of that time, but later in the, my tour, I was back up there again and did a lot of humping. I was worked as an RTO, radio telephone operator, for a forward observer. And we were with the artillery, but yet we were not on the artillery hills. We were out in the front with the infantry calling in artillery for them. And it was quite a, you know, a heavy experience. A lot of times we were on our own and I just had to get back up in there and see what it's like. I've been back to Vietnam so many times. I've learned all about the beautiful culture and the people and everything, stories that we can t share, but I never had had a chance not being solo to get up and do a backpacking trip up into these mountains. Who would want to do that? Well, I don't know why I did. And uh, everybody I've talked to said, <laughs> ask that question. I just had to do this. And being back there so many different times and not being able to do that, I knew that this trip was very important for me. I never intended to write a book about it, by the way. I did journal it the whole time. And then uh, a couple of years back, I took a cross-country trip in my slide-in camper in my truck. And I did a six-week trip across the country. I live in Maine now with my wife. And my daughter in California, I wanted to go have Thanksgiving with her and my granddaughter. And, and so I took off on this trip and I thought, wow, what, you know, these travel logs on some of these cross-country trips are just amazing. And I thought, well, maybe I should, my brother said, maybe you should write one because I, I kind of explained it to him as being a kind of a spiritual experience for me to travel alone driving across the country. And I thought about that and I thought, well, wait a minute. That would be all right, but a lot of people have done that, but how many people have written the book? And maybe this is the one way that I can bring this trip back and share it with other people. 
about a solo trip to Vietnam. And so that's how I got started doing that one. We are speaking with John Wesley Fisher as a forward observer and a radio transmitting officer in the, during the in May primarily, but during the 1968 Tet Offensive in Vietnam. And he is recounting for us his return to Vietnam. And one of the things that you mentioned, I'm not sure if it was in your book or in our conversation, Sean, and I have read your book and I describe your book as a healing experience. But you refer to it as a return, a veteran returns to the land of his nightmares. And it's, it's very courageous, but just a little bit of the background. You'd also by this time been to Australia, New Zealand, uh, South America, I believe, Central America. So you weren't uh, as apprehensive about traveling alone as, as you might have been. But also one of the things that I noticed in, in being to Vietnam as young men at 18, 19, 20 years old, it made the world a lot smaller and it made the world a lot more accessible. We, you know, when I would, before I went to Vietnam, Vietnam was the other side of the world, which was too far for anybody to, to travel. So the world became a lot smaller and accessible for us. But I want to share this real quick and just for the veterans in our, in our audience who would be listening to this. And I explained this to John. When I left Benoit, I remember flying out and leaving the tarmac on a 707 American Airlines and looking down and Vietnam was just nothing but a field of craters. And I remember thinking to myself very profoundly, how does anything survive down there? And for 50 years, my memories of Vietnam were nothing but that ground covered in, in bomb craters and just the jungle where we fought. I had never thought of it as having people that had cultures, that had religions, that there was geography, geology, all of the wonderful things that John will be describing in his book. So pay attention to this when, when John mentioned some of these things, because the book, whether you decide or like to go back to Vietnam or not, this book provides some very, very strong healing for me, in particular, the 50 years of, of those memories of that country just being bomb craters. So take it over, John. Well, you know, I, I saw the same things when I left and I thought, you know, there's no way in the world I'm ever coming back to this place. And I'll tell you what, I started doing some counseling back in the 90s, late 90s, and I started journaling and I, I shared my journaling notes with my therapist. And she said, you know, you need to write a book about all of this. And I thought, are you kidding me? I got a professional chiropractic practice and there's no way I want to share this stuff with people. I don't want people to know. I was still hiding. I was still in a uh, you know, hiding mode about being a Vietnam veteran. You know, we didn't really necessarily have a great reception coming home and you couldn't put Vietnam on your resume and get a, you wouldn't get a job if you did that. So I never really said anything to anybody. And I had Vietnam veteran patients and everything, but I still didn't. And I thought, write a book, write a book. How am I going to do that? And I decided to write a novel. And of course, the novel <laughs> encompassed many of my stories. And consequently, people figured out that I was a Vietnam vet. When I finished, one of my friends said, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, I have no idea. Well, this friend just happened to be a Vietnamese man. He was educated in Canada. He left Vietnam in 1973, before the Vietnam War was officially over for Vietnam. And he got a scholarship to go to school in Canada and now was working at the Energy Research Lab in Golden, Colorado, where my practice was. And he said, well, why don't you go back to Vietnam? He said, I haven't been back either. I want to I'll go with you. And so we had it all planned out. But yet somehow, some way he, he got a secured a different job before we could go. And he was not going to get any vacation time. And so I decided, well, there's no way I told him there's no way I can go back there. But when I finally decided that I could go back there, I did a lot of research 
on flights and everything. And when he told me he couldn't go, I was so disappointed. And I, I was so surprised at myself. How could you be disappointed about going, not being able to go back to Vietnam? But I was. And so I went online and I started looking around. And I found a vet group out of Tucson, Arizona that was going back to Vietnam. And I signed up. And so, you know, I was so enamored with how wonderful and beautiful the country was. Now, this is 17 years ago. And it was it's still healing from the war to some degree, but it's, every year it's less and less noticeable that there was a war in the area. And in 2003, it was, I mean, it was, there were still some bomb craters around and so forth, but it was really an amazing experience. So much so that I became a member of the board of directors for the, the group, what was called Tours of Peace, no longer in, in operation out of Tucson, Arizona. And I said, you know, one of my projects I'd like to do, being on the board here, is to organize a trip for veterans going back to Vietnam that have already been back once before. And so we did that one. And from that point on, I soon became a trip leader myself, formed my own organization called CORE, Community Reconciliation Vietnam, and have gone back. So I really, it's really an amazing, amazing culture of loving people that have forgiven and they, you know, they say the war was a long time ago and we live today. So why even talk about the war? You know, we don't have, they don't have PTSD. They didn't say we don't have PTSD. They don't even know what it is. And so my veterans that go back with me, that I take them on the trip, you know, are just blown away. And every opportunity I get, I hook them up with former enemy veterans so we can sit around and chat and talk. And it is just an amazing, amazing experience. That's why I decided to go back and, and continue and write this book about this solo trip. And it has ups and downs. You know, I traveled solo, so I didn't have the convenience of a guide arranging buses and, and trains and planes and everything for me. I had to do that all myself. And I ended up in some pretty precarious situations, but it was all good, good experience, good fun. And just meeting and, and, finding out more about this culture, the beauty of Vietnam, all the way from the northern border with China to the southern border with the Gulf of Thailand and, and bordering up with Cambodia. I traveled all that distance. It's over a thousand miles as the crow flies, but it's much further as the road drives because it's very windy roads in Vietnam. But I wrote the book because I know a lot of Vietnam veterans are not going to want to go back. I know I didn't want to go to, go back at first. So I, under, I understand, and I'm not trying to talk anybody into going back. I've taken a lot of veterans back already, but, you know, there's over 3 million of us. I know not, most of us don't want to go back there. And so this book gives you an opportunity to go back with me in print. We are speaking with John Wesley Fisher. I, I think that's an excellent description, John. I might add, if I could just understand, when you, when you mentioned that you, weren't, you were hiding from the experience of war, nobody knew you were a veteran, I think a lot of us can understand that, the, the isolation. But the isolation, in many cases, was staying away from the anger that we didn't understand, the guilt we didn't understand, the shame we had that we didn't understand, that whole emo emotional battlefield in our head that we didn't know. We were trying to avoid it, didn't know how to resolve it. And that's one of the beauties of your book is it helps us to, to resolve that, or at, at least to, to resolve it so that it doesn't keep us in isolation. So we can come out and be happy to engage people with our experiences at war. But one page on your book, page 112, you mentioned this, you had 
had asked, they had mentioned to you, there is no war, the Vietnamese said. And you were speaking with a Vietnamese man, and, and he said his hallowed response was thought-provoking. The war was a long time ago, and we live today, and today there is no war. His name is H-U-Y-N-H. I don't want to mispronounce it. Juan Quinn later spoke with me and mentioned that all of the men in the circle had fought during the war. They had been drafted by the Viet Cong to fight against the Americans, like their ancestors had been against the French. When it was over, it was over. The war was no longer in their life. None of them seemed to suffer from to be experiencing the PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, left over from the war like so many of the American soldiers. Yet they had been drafted just as I had been. Their return back home must have been similar to my experience, yet their community had accepted them, regardless of their traumatic background. With philosophy and acceptance, they were guided back into the present moment. The war was a long time ago, and we live today, and there is no war, Bull had said. And now your response was, how could I possibly have any more questions? I think that's just very, very difficult for us to understand that the war is over when for most of us for 50 years, it has been there every second of the day. Mm, absolutely. You know, um, that was an, on my backpack in the mountains, and I needed a Vietnamese guy, which I got in Khantum. And when during the Vietnam War, Quinn is how you say that name. Quinn was a child, and he's probably was about eight or nine years old during that time. And I met both he and his brother, younger brother. I know I'd probably seen him playing around on the sand dunes on the river there near Khantum at one point. He was my guide, and he has an, uh, a tourist company in in Vietnam, and he takes people on very unique tours. He had to admit that he'd never taken anybody backpacking who had been a veteran of the war before. I'm not sure he'd take anybody backpacking, but he takes them out camping at different times. At any rate, he introduced me to a man named Bol, B-O-L, who was a Bernard Mountain Yard villager. Actually, he lived up in the mountains up above the villages and kind of a special character, probably one of the spiritual sacred guides of the a lot of the people who live way high in the mountains are associated with the villages below, but they're not, they don't live there. This guy was one of those guys, and it turned out that he did fight in the Vietnam War, but he fought for the Viet Cong, not for the Americans. Now, a lot of veterans who know, who know the Central Highlands know that the mountain yards did help the Americans and many occasions over there in the Central Highlands, mostly on the western slopes the western slopes that bordered Cambodia and Laos, that's where the Ho Chi Minh Trail was over in that area. And so the Americans were mostly in those mountains. On the eastern slopes, there's a big valley that goes through from Pleiku to Kantum to Dokto, and there are mountain ranges on both sides. And on the eastern slopes, I didn't know this at the time, but we didn't go over there very often. We went over there some but I never knew why we didn't go over there a lot. Well, it turns out that the they called that VC Mountain, Viet Cong Mountain, because all the mountain yards were Viet Cong over there. And we would rather fight with the mountain yards who knew that terrain better than anybody else than against them. And I guess that's why we were never over there. I was not allowed to go on my backpack into the western slopes because of the mountain yard resistance. And because they sided with the Americans during the war, they don't allow any tourists to go over on that side. They don't want to take any chances. This is the Vietnamese government, by the way, communist government. They decided they don't want anybody going over there. 
that might get together with the mountain yards and help them ban against the country again. So, but I was allowed to go over on the other side. So I had been there before. It had views of Docto Village from way up high. So I decided to go for it and go on that side. And really the mountains are not a whole lot different on either side. And I had been there, so it was good for me. So Bo was one of those guys and he was quite an amazing character. And we had a lot of conversations through the interpreter, by the way. My, inter- my guide, Huynh, spoke numerous languages, several mountain yard dialects, including, and then of course, the Vietnamese and English. So he was my interpreter with Bo. And the conversations were usually fairly short because Bo was really in the moment living a mindful life. He's one of my spirit guides right now, I'm telling you. He's an amazing, amazing character. Man of few words, but yet not necessary. And when they come out, they are just so profound. He took me to some places up there in the mountains, place where, and I'm not sure why he did this, because I, I really honestly don't believe that he had never been back to this spot before, but he wanted to take me there after we had gotten to know each other for a while. And all of a sudden, he just decided to go there for some reason. He was our point man and led us over to this area where there had been former bombings, American bombings on a camp that he was involved in, and he was the only survivor. And all his friends were buried there. He had never been back since the war and never found a need to go back. But he thought maybe I would like to go back. <laughs> and he took me there. And it was just a phenomenal thing to that he would share that with me and be there where those where his friends were all buried and so forth. We ended up spending the night there of all things, place where it used to be a, an enemy target by my country. And here we are sleeping together out there on the in the in the middle of the jungle. And it's really phenomenal. And I can't remember what your question was, Mike. I hope I hit on some of it. Not so much a question, but I, would, I wanted to set up a little bit of what your book is primarily about, besides the physical beauty, the geologic and geographic beauty of the country, is to set it up for your, your book, going back from leaving the Delta and being at the, the water market, all the way up to the China border, you find nothing but forgiveness. You find nothing but forgiveness and love from people who have had extraordinary experiences at war, and most of us would think have no reason to, to be forgiving, have no reason to even smile if they were to see an American or former American soldier. And I think with, with Bull, that, that is the ultimate, to find a former, I, I don't even like the word enemy, a, opposing force and actually be able to discuss the war, go to a place that was significant to him, spend a night for those of us who know the jungle. That was an incredible place when you were just with you, in the safety with your, your own American forces. But now you're alone with an opposing force, and yet there's nothing even in your, your retelling of the story now, John. Nothing that is hostile or angry. It's all just a beautiful experience for you. So, and I'll take it back and let you go back from the Delta up to the North. But what I want the the listeners, especially the, the Vietnam veterans to understand is look at the education in this. This is not mental illness. This is the education of resolving the issues you have with people who understand how to resolve them. First of all, you know, I, my subtitle of the book is A Veteran Returns to the Land of His Nightmares. And I had done a tremendous amount of work by the time I did this trip. But yet, on occasion, I have nightmares. And I have a flashback from time to time. And, you know, I want to be able to understand these. And why do they keep coming? And so 
I often dub my trips when trying to help veterans decide whether to do it is that we go back to Vietnam to make new memories. You know, the nightmares, this is the land of our nightmares. But when you make new memories about this place, the nightmares don't have to be there, at least with the same kind of impact that they always were. I dream and I think about Vietnam probably every single day and night, but my memories are different now. And I have a lot of things that, are, that I can rely on that are so wonderful about this country. The beauty of it, for one thing, oh my God, it is just phenomenal. If you asked me before what, colors, what color comes to mind when you think of Vietnam, before I went back, I would say red. That's what I thought it was. But now it is beautiful green, the greenest green you've ever seen. And when you're up in the central highlands and up in some of the mountains higher, even up in the Sapa northern mountains in northern Vietnam, north of Hanoi, up by the Chinese border, the sky is as blue as I remember in Colorado with high altitude. It is just a phenomenal scene there. And the oceans are beautiful. We, we often take people to uh, Ha Long Bay, which is beautiful crystal formations in the middle of the bay. I've now been through some of the caves in the central part of Vietnam on this trip. The largest cave in the world is there, Song Dong Cave. And I never went into that. It wasn't open to the public when I was there. But the third largest cave in the world is still there. And so there's some beautiful, beautiful things to see and, and enjoy in Vietnam. I mean, it's unlimited as to the different types of terrain that you can experience over there. So I traveled all the way up after the Central Highlands. I kept going. I went to Da Nang area, and I have some friends that live in Hoi An there. And I spent a week there and, and just immersed myself, rented a motorbike and traveled all over the place around that area, immersed myself in the culture and the beauty of it and the, and the spirituality. I mean, a lot of Buddhist statues all around and monasteries. I have taken people who have, there are two monasteries that come to mind. One I visited on this particular solo trip, which was Marble Mountain in close to Da Nang, in between Da Nang and Hoi An. And, and a lot of people don't know, but during the war, that this was a VC hospital inside of the Marble Mountain. And I took a guy who was on a gun crew in, on an Air Force base that used to shoot mortar rounds toward this mountain. VC would come out at night and shoot defense targets towards the, towards the base. And they would return fire. And when they returned fire, they created a lot of holes inside of this beautiful area, this beautiful cave. And it was a hospital. And nobody knew it was a hospital. Of course, it would be a terrible thing to shoot at a hospital. But he was doing it. And he could, he could not believe when he went inside of there. We held a ceremony for him and, and did some really cool things to help him come to peace with it all. And he, he spoke to us about it. It was really a phenomenal thing. But where you serve, Mike, in Tanin, there's a mountain called Nui Badin. And we had American soldiers on the very top, special forces on the top of this mountain. We had forces all around the bottom and in, in different areas around the, uh, around the mountain, you know, within distance. But right smack dab in the middle of that mountain was a Buddhist monastery. And nobody really knew that during the war. And that Buddhist monastery is a place you can go visit now. And they were praying for us all the time during that war. The most phenomenal thing. And these are some of the things that, that when you discover it, when you go back to travel, it's just like, it's mind-blowing. It's just really phenomenal. After the central part, I went up to the to north of the former DMZ in Dung Hoi. And Dung Hoi is where they have all these magnificent caves. And I had read about 
Songdong Cave, and I thought I would wanted to go into it, and I didn't realize it wasn't open for tourists. Only National Geographic scientists and so forth were going in there at that point. And now it's open, but I did get to go into some caves and, and beautiful mountain areas, limestone formations and so forth. And the caves are just loaded. I've been in Carlsbad Cavern. These caves are just, <laughs> Carlsbad Cavern doesn't even touch it. These are huge, huge limestone formations inside of these caves, stalagmites and so forth. And oh gosh, it was really a beautiful experience. And then I busted from there up to Hanoi. And in Hanoi, I was able to be there right at the right time for the celebration of Tet. And that was Tet 2012. And it was the year of the dragon. And actually, it was the year of the super dragon. Every five years, every five cycles of the, I hope I get that right, five cycles of the uh, zodiac calendar, which there are 12 different zodiac signs for every year. And then every 12 years, it starts over again. And this was the fifth cycle. So they call it the super dragon. And here I am visiting. And I have a niece in Hanoi. She has adopted me as niece. We became really good friends when she was a college student. And she invited me to her home village for Tet. I was the first white man ever to walk through the streets, streets, I shouldn't say streets, the paths, the trails of this village, let alone be the first American. And I met all of her family. Everybody welcomed me. A lot of people to this day still talk about that time when that strange white man was in that village in 2012, Year of the Dragon. What did that mean? And they still are trying to place meaning onto that, my appearance in that village. She took me then on the morning of Tet to visit her grandpa. And her grandpa was a former Viet Minh soldier, actually fought at Dien Bien Phu, the last battle against the French in 1954. And... Uh, was wounded severely, and so he did not return to fight against the Americans. But he has a really good friend named King, K-I-N-H is pronounced King, and he did fight against both the French and the Americans. And I met them both, picture of me with him in the book, wonderful, wonderful men. <laughs> Unfortunately, Grandpa has passed on now, but I still get to visit with King when I go back. And quite an amazing experience seeing these weathered, veterans that fought way longer than I did. I mean, King fought against the French and then 10 years against the Americans. Come on. That's a, what, here we are complaining about one year of service in Vietnam and how this PTSD that we have. And these guys don't have a hint of it. And they were fighting in war. Sure, they were defending their country and so forth. But war is war. It's ugly. It's horrible. It's bloody. It's, it's gooey. And and it's barbaric, and it's just not, it's inhumane. And God darn it, these guys are amazing, laughing all the time, and we're making jokes about fighting in the war. And he would say, oh, I remember those helicopters coming around. They caused havoc on us and, and always chased us all around. And I said, yeah, you know, I used to have to jump out of those things almost on a daily basis. And and then hit the ground and have to avoid you shooting at me. And we would laugh and laugh. Oh boy, it was quite an amazing experience being with these two men. And it was a, we were having a party at the time. It was a tet gathering with all kinds of family and everything. People listening to our conversation, of course, being translated by Quinn and, and laughing. And it was just, it was phenomenal. It was really a, a neat thing. 
Let, let me ask you this, John. When we were over there, Tet Offensive, uh, there was a Tet Offensive, but it's really a, a holiday. It's, it's a holy day, I believe a holy day. But when we were there, Tet, the Tet always represented what you saw in 1968, uh, the offensive, the battle, the war. None of us really know what is Tet, what is the Tet holiday? What is the Tet celebration? Maybe you could explain that quickly to us because it, 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 it's, it's not about war. No, no, no. It's, Tet is a... Uh national holiday it's uh, goes right along with chinese new year and it's vietnamese new year they don't accept any of the chinese lingo about it, about it at all they have their own they even have some of their zodiac characters are even a little bit different like the rabbit is a cat and the uh, cow is a water buffalo and uh, anyway there's it's a holiday that usually lasts several weeks sometimes it'll last a month depending on your your particular village and your family tradition. People travel all over the country. They'll travel miles to be there. Most American Vietnamese try to go home for Tet. If they can't, they still celebrate it here, just like if they were at home. And it doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter anything. Tet is a holiday, a Vietnamese holiday that goes on and on. And it's quite a celebration. And in 1968, the Vietnamese, you know, they usually take the time off. And I say, usually they had all up until 1968, the war shut down and everybody went, you know, very often the American soldiers went into base camp for a while and, and a stand down in it. It was a time for rest and, and uh, catch up. And the Vietnamese decided, you know, this is a, an amazing opportunity to take advantage of our American they're disadvantaged uh, all along, even though they had so many more soldiers than we did. We had all the firepower with the helicopters and our gun power and everything was just far superior to theirs. They decided to take advantage of everything being down and attack. And it didn't turn out too successful for them, except for a couple of things here. But they lost more men during that Tet of 1968, and that's including the whole year that Tet went on. It went, May was the second phase and August was the third phase. May was the most severe phase. Although we only know about the first phase because that was the one that was publicized and on TV every night. And it really started a lot of disorient, a lot of confusion in the, the U.S. and a lot of demonstrations began and a lot, it became very nasty at home. I was over there. I had no idea what was going on at home, but Walter Cronkite was even over there and he he told how horrible it was, and probably the only journalist that's ever had enough guts to do that on TV. But at any rate, Tet, that's what we think of when we think of the Tet celebration, but it's not that at all. You know, if we would have done our, if we would have read our history books, we would have realized that the Vietnamese did this once before, and it was way back. I'm sorry, I don't have, if I had my book in front of me, I would tell you the year and everything that had happened, but it was several centuries ago that the Vietnamese did a surprise attack on the Chinese and won a very strategic battle and ended a war against the Chinese during that time by attacking during the Tet, which was also Chinese New Year. And so when we think of Tet, we hear Tet. Oh yeah, Tet, Vietnam Tet. We think of 1968 and how horrible it was, but there have been so many Tets since then and so many Tets before then that have been pure ceremony and pure joy. It's a special holiday. People actually have a birthday on Tet. Everybody gets a year older on Tet. Even if you were born the day before Tet begins, you turn one years old. 
And the reason for that is in the beginning, nobody really kept track of birthdays and hardly anybody knew what their birthday was. And so they just said, well, it happens during Tet. They don't celebrate Christmas. They don't celebrate New Year's like we do on December 31st. They celebrate Tet. And it is a magnificent holiday. And I was so honored and privileged to be there, especially on the year of the Super Dragon. And everybody just treated me so royally in this little village that had never seen a white man before. We're speaking with John Wesley Fisher, describing some of the, the experiences that are in his book, Docto Rx. And one of the things, going back to this acceptance that you met from the people, not just former soldiers, but you tell a magnificent story about a woman in her 90s. I believe, again, I'll be careful trying to pronounce her name, Madam Hai Ha Tai Koi. She was in her mid-90s. And she had lost almost her entire family was annihilated during the war. And, and I hope I have the right person here, as I remember reading in your book. Maybe you can explain that. And, and, but, but in the end, I'll just give the final statement that, and you, you can lead up to it and just tell her the love and forgiveness. And I really want our audience to under love and forgiveness because forgiveness is something, believe it or not, that the medical profession, mental health profession, shies away from that whole thing of forgiveness. So, but this is really an important story. And at the end, she, she goes on to say that she told me that she thought she was supposed to make it, in other words, survive, so she could welcome American soldiers back to the scene and help, help them heal from the dishonor. What a blessing to know her. I mentioned that before, but maybe you could just touch on how important that was, because in your experience, in our conversations, John, you had mentioned how many times in your life it really wasn't the direct cause of death that, that had affected you, but as an artillery forward observer, the indirect fire, it was only in your imagination what the numbers were of destruction that you had caused. Right. This is Madame, and important women are called Madame in Vietnam, and that's something they learned from the French, I suppose. And so Madame Cui is her name, that's her first name, and she lived in My Lai during the My Lai massacre in 1967. There was a horrible situation that went on in a whole platoon marched into, not only marched, but flew in with helicopters and, and really exaggerated forces on this little village to attack VC, what was suspected as VC occupancy. And they ended up going in there and genocide the whole village. Over 500 people were killed. Madame Cui was pregnant. She had two ch young children at home and a mother. Her husband and older son, who was about 15 at the time, were out in the rice paddies working when the troops came marching in and they, would, they just decimated the whole place, set it on fire, raped many of the women, lined up the, a lot of the villagers in front of this ditch, which still is there today, and just open fired on them, machine gun fired on them, and killing many, many, most everybody in the village. Madame Cui was nicked in the shoulder, not nicked, she's got a nice scar there. She was hit hard in the shoulder and fell back into the ditch while other bodies were falling in on top of her. And she played dead in there because she feared that they, if they saw her move, they would shoot at her again. And she played dead and survived. Her two young children were killed. Her mother was killed. Her son, out in the rice paddy as the choppers were flying out of the village, was shot. And he was shot all on his Right side, his eye was hit, his, his arm, he's, he has a stub for an arm, a stub for a leg, 
and, and all on that side of his body and barely survived. Husband came home from that day at work and saw what had happened. And within a year, he died of heartbreak. But Madame Cui continued to live and had this baby even. And baby has had a baby of herself. She has a grandchild from this baby now. <laughs> her son also has grandchildren for her. So she has many things to be grateful for, she says. I said, how can you be so, how can you be so welcoming and warming to me when my, my country came in here and decimated your village? And she says, she said, I have many things to be grateful for. I have grandchildren. I have two children. And I survived this war so that I could be here when you come back and I could help you with the dishonor of what happened in my village. I say dishonor at Milai. I think everybody would agree that that was kind of a horrible, dis disgraceful event. And it was a berserk event. These guys had been out in the field. They had been attacked and attacking other villages and Viet Cong villages and so forth. And then they come in and they were given this mission. They went in with a berserk lieutenant and they just decimated the place. I'm not saying that any of the soldiers except for the lieutenant are responsible for what had happened, except they got into the flow of it all and it became just a horrible, horrible thing. And that is dishonor. So I wouldn't tell any Vietnam veteran that, you know, their service is dishonor. I've had that told to me before, you know, by, by civilians when I come home. I've been spit on because of it. And I'm telling you, I would I will never I would never say that even though I think the whole thing is a dishonorable thing for us to be involved in that war when it had really no outcome for us. But yet at the same time, you know, we were all young and drafted and conscripted into this scene and we didn't know what the heck was going on. I certainly didn't. And not that everybody was drafted. A lot of people joined, but still, you know, we didn't really understand what was going on. We went over to there to serve our country supposedly and I think anything but that happened. I believe now that the work that you and I are doing, Mike, to working with veterans and helping them with surviving this war, you know, is more service to our country than we ever did during the war. I would agree 100%. Absolutely. And, and it's really not about, again, it's difficult for me. It's not about mental illness. It's about educating ourselves on the reactions we had from that experience and how do we resolve them and accept them. But let me go back because we're, we're getting down to the end of our hour, John, and, and, and go back. The overall theme of your book is so wonderful because you, you're in the country where all of this decimation took place and these people are forgiving. When we left and flew out of the tarmacs of uh, the different airports and went home, we thought the war was behind us. And yet the place of the war is peaceful and we brought all the war home in our souls and in our minds and, and that turmoil has lasted with us in this country for 50 years. So going back again, just, Share again the overall sense of how these people from the Delta all the way to the, to the, the northern border were accepting, forgiving, loving, had put the war behind them, and how beneficial that was to you. And on top of that, you saw the beauty. I don't know if you had mentioned the, the Minthan Pagoda in Pleiku where you had served. Some of the, the beautiful, beautiful cultural experiences that you, you were shared with you on this trip that were healing for you. You know, I've been back 14 different times now. And so every time I, I try to go to somewhere different that I've never been to before, but some, when I'm leading groups, 
sometimes it's difficult because I, I want to take them where they want to go. And if they served in Vietnam, of course, we want to go as close as where we can to if they serve. Sometimes we can't get exactly where they served because, you know, this was a helicopter war and there are no helicopters anymore. And and you can't get out there into the jungle. And some of it's forbidden in our, for our presence anyway. But at any rate, it, it's quite an amazing culture of, you know, we say they're they're kind of a Buddhist culture, but you know, that's, that's not entirely true because Buddhism is only approximately 25% of the culture. I mean, it's so dominant. Everybody, everybody in Vietnam honors the lady Buddha, Quan Yin. They call her Quan Nam and she is statues of her everywhere. And it doesn't matter if you're Catholic or whatever, you always honor her and, and pray to her. So it's not necessarily a Buddhist thing, but it's a cultural thing. Buddhism is approximately 25%, approximately 10% is Catholicism brought to Vietnam from the French, and the rest is something else or nothing at all. And up in the mountains, you know, very often they don't have Buddhism up there, and sometimes they have Catholicism because of the missionary work up there, but still most of it is something different. And what they usually do is they have a spiritual Somebody that they honor from their village from way back could be a war hero, could be somebody more recent, could be a chief, could be a number of different things. And they're the ones that they honor and pray to when they uh, are praying. The basic foundation, underlying foundation of the country is Confucianism. Now, you know, a lot of people don't know what Confucianism is. It really was a philosophy. It wasn't necessarily a religion. Only four countries practiced it. Vietnam, China, Taiwan, and Korea. And to this day, Vietnam is still heavy with Confucius philosophy. It has changed a lot. Vietnam has changed it. And actually, Ho Chi Minh is primarily responsible for a lot of this to honor more of the female. And Confucianism was written a long time ago in the time of Buddha. And so there's not a lot of female recognition in the, in the philosophy. Vietnamese have changed it and the women get, you go to, you go to visit a college in Vietnam and I've spoken to a few, the majority of the students are women there now and there's, there's not that many men going to college and it's really phenomenal. They're really becoming educated, they're honored, they're cherished and they pray to the female Buddha and Mother Mary and it's just really a beautiful place and this Confucius philosophy is very mindful it's very living in the moment. That's why they can forgive these things so much because it's their basic philosophy. You talk to the majority of people in Vietnam about Confucianism and they don't even know what it is. What? I've never heard of that. But they practice it and it doesn't matter what their religion is. They all have an altar. They honor their elders. There's pictures of the elders and the family members up on the altar that have passed. They feed it. The altar during Tet, they make a meal, put it on the altar. It's just phenomenal thing to see this culture honoring in such a way, honoring their elders and the things that have happened in the past, but not reliving the past. That's very important to them. The past is a long time ago and we live today. That's their motto. Everybody lives this motto, no matter who or what, or their background or their religion is, they practice this Confucius type philosophy. It's just it's a phenomenal thing to see. And, you know, as I say, they don't even know what Confucius, who Confucius was, but they practice this without falter. And everybody has an altar. Everybody has an altar that they honor 
their families. And this is just the love of this country, the love that they hold on to each other. They support each other. They live with each other. People come home from the war. I don't know about you, but I came home and, and really my family had moved to another state when I was in Vietnam. I came home, basically I was by myself and I traveled around by myself. I traveled Australia, New Zealand. I was gone for a whole year. I didn't want to be in this country. It was such a strange land to me. It was so, everybody was so mean and so, and living in the past in Tet was a horrible thing to experience to talk about and the war and everything was, oh gosh, I just had to get my tail out of this country. And I went to Australia and New Zealand to do that. I traveled with a backpack and a surfboard and I hitchhiked all over the country looking for surf. And that was basically what I did to get away from this wartime. And the Vietnamese can do that within their own communities. They don't have to do these kind of things. Not that I didn't enjoy it and it didn't change my life traveling. It really did, and I continue to travel, but the uh, Vietnamese soldiers came home to a welcome and honor, and yes, some of them were screwed up, but their communities took them in and, and helped them come back into the moment, present moment, and live now because the war is over. John, let me, let me add a little bit. Again, I've known your story and, and I've known you for quite a few years, but more, more recently gotten to know you much better. Even though you came home and you went traveling, you have always had a philosophy that yes, there were things wrong. You had the nightmares, you had the different reactions to war, but rather than to consider these mental, this a mental illness, you, took, you undertook to really educate yourself by traveling around the world, going out and seeing things, trying to figure out who you were and what these reactions you were having were. And I, I think that has been a very, very important part of your journey is that you have gone out seeking these answers to your reactions to war with all you've seen in Vietnam and all you've seen in your travels around the world. And so part of our purpose of the podcast is to understand that we as veterans have to take control of our our situation. We have to go out and get the answers for ourselves. There is no magic pixie dust that anybody's going to sprinkle on us. We have to go out and if we've had these reactions, educate ourselves and get the answers. And that's what you've done so beautifully here. Now we're getting down to the end of our hour, our time with you, John, for today. Could you share how this is helping you in your writing of this book and what you do on a daily basis now that is continues to keep you focused on, on the healing? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I want to say that I don't believe that Vietnam veterans or any veteran or anybody who has been involved in traumatic experiences has a mental condition. What I think that really is happening here is that our body, has, we have changed. And yes, our minds have seen things that shouldn't have been seen, and they're having a hard time dealing with it. But yet, it's something inside of us that has changed. We are not mentally ill. That's not what it is. And that's how we're being treated in the VA and in most counselors. The best thing that I can say to do, we do need to have counseling, but reputable counseling that is not dwelling on mental illness. These are soul-related, spirit-related, being-related problems. They call us a human being. And the human has seen some horrible things and the being is affected. And that's what we need to treat the being, the spirit, what's going on, what's different. So finding things to do to do that. I think that writing was very important for me, extremely important. And I still do it because I still have work to do. 
And it's never going to be over, I don't believe. This stuff is tattooed on my brain. That's why they call it mental illness, because they think that our brains are, are all screwed up. Yes, our brains have seen things that shouldn't have been seen, but yet we are fine in the mental department. That's, uh, how do you expect to go through war and not have difficulties in the brain? So writing was very important and traveling was very important. Traveling, you see things, you see, you, we get so locked up into our way of seeing things or our way of living, our culture here. Traveling, getting on the road, doing things the way other cultures do it and seeing it, you start learning and you start learning. We are just a small little corner of the world. In fact, our country is only 200 and some odd years old. We're not, we're the, one of the youngest countries around. There's so much to learn by so many all around the world traveling, there's only one way to see it, and that's by traveling. And so I think it's very important. Every day I get up, I take a walk down to the lake here. I live five-minute walk down to the lake. I'm bragging. I live in the backwoods of Maine now. It's a perfect place for a veteran to live. It's quiet, especially during this, these days of COVID. It's, it's really, uh, I'm isolated without isolating, and it's really an awesome place for me to be. I walk down to the lake, check out the lake conditions, if it's glassy and smooth, I get my paddle board and get down there and paddle around on the lake for an hour. If not, I come back up. I do some yoga and meditation. I just relax, try to get us. That's why I don't do these things before 10 o'clock because I have things to do before 10 o'clock. I start my day out slowly. You, know, you heard the loons go from my loon clock here. So I know we've been here almost an hour now, so I'll wrap it up by saying that, you know, we just need to take good quality time for ourselves working with our being, you know, our human has gone through a lot in this lifetime. I'm 73 years old now. I've seen a lot. I've done a lot. A lot of things have happened to me that I didn't count on, but yet I work on trying to keep my being in touch with my human and so that I can continue on in this existence and want to be here. You know, I mean, a lot of times in my life, I didn't want to be here anymore. I wanted to check out, wished I could have. You, you also do, do something else I think is very important, John, and that's the difference. You, you have talked and written about your, your first two marriages that ended in divorce, but you speak now about the importance of recognizing the health of the family, your family, and you do go to the vet center for a little bit of counseling that you stay in touch for the sake of your wife or, or for the inclusion of your wife so that your family is also happy, which I think is something that a lot of us forgot to do. We, we thought it was all about us. And you do such a beautiful job now of considering your wife white, Lindley, as part, part of the family, part of the health care of the family. Absolutely. So, in fact, I've got an appointment here in about two hours I got to get ready for. <laughs> I go, I go, try to go once a month, but I travel a lot in the winter time here. I don't want, I don't like to stay here in Maine during the winter for obvious reasons. So I have a, a camper and when I go, my wife and I go traveling mostly down south where it's warmer. So I don't counsel during those times, but sometimes, you know, we have some tough tuffles. And so what we do is we give him a call and we, we do it on the line. And so, yes, it's an important thing. And we, I don't ever want to stop doing that because, well, you know, I've had two failed marriages and mostly because of this thing that I thought I had was PTSD. And, you know, it's, it's not a fun thing to go through those kind of deals. I don't ever, ever want to have to do that again. And so I do things to try to help make sure that it doesn't happen again. 
Let me close with this and see if you would agree or disagree with me. A lot of us have served our time in the military. We did what we took the oath to do, and we did that successfully. And at that time during the military, we owed our responsibility to that obligation. But now that we're home and that obligation is over, we don't owe anybody anything. At least we don't owe anybody outside of our families before ourselves. Primarily and firstly, we don't have to explain to anybody why we're getting help, where we're getting help, what it's for. We are entitled to do this in the sanctity of our soul and for the health care of ourselves and our families. We don't owe an explanation to anyone. And so the stigma that we come home to, I think you do a very, very beautiful job of just denying the stigma of how ridiculous the stigmas are. And I, I would encourage any veteran who is affected by stigmas just to, you don't owe any explanation to anybody. And so stigma should not even be a question for you. Sounds good to me, Mike. Okay, again, we want to thank John. It, this is so inspirational what you have done. And there is a, a short section, a couple sections in your book. And one of them always goes back to something that's wonderful. And it's about what you learned and the learn of the wonderful civilization of Vietnam of such love and, and forgiveness. And so thank you for coming and sharing this with us. Your book, Docto Rx, will be out sometime in September. By the and way, it, it's, it's out right now. You can get It's available on Amazon. I haven't received my copy yet, but it's available on Amazon on right now as we speak. Okay, Docto Rx by John Wesley Fisher. And if you go to our website, I'm going to try and get John to do a couple of video presentations on our book over the next coming months if he's available. So John Wesley Fisher, thank you. Boy, I, you know, you, sometimes I hear you choke up with tears. I choke up with tears uh, just thinking about all you've done for the healthcare of, uh, of our veterans and our families. So thank you very much. You're welcome. My honor. That is our show for today. And please send us your feedback and let us know so we can always be improving our show. But that is Stigma Free Vet Zone. And what a wonderful discussion we've had with John Wesley Fisher. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.